needed break as well. And I do have some some greetings to extend to you uh, from some people. In the center of your screen there, you see our workers uh, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, the Charbonneaus, and they sent me an email uh, this week uh, thanking us for our support and grateful for uh, us thinking of them. And they just gave an update, you know, and this is kind of daily life for them in Port-au-Prince. Almost three weeks ago, uh, there's an American organization there called Love a Child, and there were five of their employees who were kidnapped, and the, the gangs are still running the show there in Port-au-Prince. Since then, the only news that we've had is that they're being held with 200 other hostages. Is it true, or is this, is it, did this gang, is there, have they really kidnapped that many people? We don't even know. But last year, the same organization had 23 employees kidnapped by the same gang. And after negotiations, they were released without ransom, except that one had passed away. So this is the, the part of the email that caught my attention. December is the most dangerous month of the year in Haiti. Imagine that. And she goes on and on with the different stories of things that happened, but uh, uh, thankful for, for uh, our support of them in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Uh, this Monday, I went to uh, Good Shepherd Elementary School in the Christmas rain there and dropped off uh, 15 of these little blessing boxes on your behalf and got an email from them on behalf of Good Shepherd School and Community. We'd like to thank you sincerely for your kindness and generosity. And they say this, you have brought some uplifting, uh, some uplifting and joy during these uncertain times. From Good Shepherd, that's the principal and the vice principal on either side there. So thank you for your, you know, for being involved in the community, being involved in, in missions, and, uh, you know, that's, that's what it's all about, folks. So uh, at this point, we're going to pass those baskets around, give you a chance to give this Christmas Eve. We're keeping the kids in, so I will attempt to be short today. Okay, and there's no response to that. You, well, I can, I can be long if you like. I can, uh, I can be long, you know, uh, but I'll try and be short today, seeing as it is Christmas Eve. So we have been in this uh, series called Questioning Christmas, Questioning Christmas, because I think that uh, many people are asking a lot of questions uh, about the real or supposedly real Christmas story these days. Even people in church do. And, you know, we come to, to church, people come to churches week after week after week, and it's like we just assume all of these things to be true. And, uh, you know, when people ask questions, sometimes they're afraid to ask them, and they sort of silently say, well, we're all supposed to sort of collectively, collectively believe this, so I guess we all believe it, but we're not really sure why. When you ask people why they believe, they say, well, because I have faith. Well, why do you have faith? Well, because I believe. Well, because, you know, all this kind of circular reasoning and all of this. So we've been struggling through this, this kind of process here with this idea of questioning. You can actually question Christmas. If it's true, it'll stand up to your questions. And why are you going to believe something if your head can't uh, accept it? So we've looked a little bit at that. The first uh, uh, message, we talked about the question, what is Christmas anyway? And we discover that Christmas is a little hard to define because there's nothing in the New Testament that says you're supposed to annually celebrate the birth of Jesus. Nothing. Nobody did it until the middle of the fourth century that tradition started to develop. So what is it? Is it, is it you know, 
celebrating the birth of Jesus, even though the New Testament doesn't, doesn't do that or doesn't say we're supposed to do that? Or is it tradition or is it, you know, mythology? Is it marketing? Is it uh, chocolate? Is it presents? Is it, by the way, uh, on that subject, thank you so much for your uh, generosity this Christmas and uh, to me and, uh, and to my family and people slipping us cards and and uh, fun gifts and all that. It's really, really appreciated. You're, you're like a spiritual family here. And I do want to mention, there he is. I see Caleb, Dr. Caleb Young up there, an old friend who's here today just visiting, and he's here. So you want to you want to say hi to Dr. Young before he leaves, all right? And um, uh, yes, so is it all those things? And the answer is yes. It's all kinds of things. And, and it's, you know, Christmas trees and Christmas lights and Christmas music and Christmas traditions. And it's, it's all those things. In a sense, it's whatever you create it to be. And I know that sounds offensive to people in churches. But remember, folks, you can't just say, well, it's about the birth of Jesus. Because, again, nobody did this for the first three centuries of church history. So it's a hard question to struggle with. Then we said, well, okay, if we try and define what Christmas is and we try to make it sort of Bible-like, then we're acknowledging what? Well, we're acknowledging the incarnation. We're acknowledging that God became flesh. Nobody recognizes even the birth of Jesus in the New Testament after it's over. Nobody talks about it after Matthew and, and Luke. Nobody mentions anything about it. But what they do mention is the idea that God has come in the person of Jesus, the advent of is a term that's used of Jesus. The advent of the Messiah is upon us. And you see this mentioned over and over and over again in the New Testament. Okay, good. And then we talked about, uh, well, why do we believe this? Do we have good reason to believe this? And we went through a little process there and came to the conclusion that, well, you know, even though they've got miracles and things like that in them, the Gospels would be considered from a historical point of view, reliable eyewitness testimony to the events in question. We said, well, hold on, okay, we can accept some of these events in question, but how are we gonna accept all these miracles that took place? You know, and they, this is a problem. You know, you got all these miracles, you have the virgin birth, you got all these things you have to deal with. Surely with our modern, sophisticated minds, we don't accept all of these things. And we had uh, Andrzej Zlachewski there, who's running the camera, who did a fantastic job coming from his background as a mathematician, talking about entropy, high entropy, low entropy, and how God comes into situations and, and changes things as if with no effort. He can change chaos into order seemingly without any effort. And this is what we call a miracle. We said, hey, you know, even if you go by the, 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 the leading view, the most accepted view worldwide of where all this came from, the implication there is that you've got a miracle that took place. So it's like you can't hide from the question of miracles. And today I'm going to really, going to really get you thinking here because I'm, talking about the theme of R-rated Christmas. R-rated Christmas. You say, Pastor, what in the world is wrong with you? This is, you, you get these traditional, beautiful Christmas carols, and you're talking about R-rated Christmas. Surely you flipped, your, you flipped your Christmas hat here, and where are you going with this? All right, I want you to stay with me. Now, this does not mean when I say R-rated, I'm obviously playing on the fact that we're in a movie theater, right? And a lot of the movies that play in movie theaters are what you call R-rated, okay? That R stands for what? 
restricted. So the audience is restricted to whatever it is, 17 plus, 18 plus, or whatever it is. If you were like me when you were a kid, that didn't matter, and you found a way to get, get into the R-rated movies like I did. Okay, don't do that, but you know, I'm just saying. Now, when I talk about R-rated Christmas, I'm not saying it's restricted. In fact, you'll see that it's accessible by all. But I'm playing with this idea, and what I want you to get from this message, if you get one thing, we have an image of Christmas in our minds. You know, it looks kind of like that one on the screen. And I put this on the screen every week to, to try and hypnotize you into this, all right? We, got, we, we have this image. We see it on the Christmas cards. We see it in the Christmas presentations in churches. We see it in the, the television depictions and the movie depictions. And it's beautiful and it's colorful and it's peaceful and it's serene and it's joyful and it's quiet and it's wonderful and all of these things. And this is the perception that we have of the story of the birth of Jesus. Now, what I want to try and convince you of today is that perception how can I put this? When you read the narratives themselves, your perception, that perception is going to be challenged. And even in some of those Christmas carols that we were singing, there are perceptions there that will come to some challenge to some degree when you actually read the stories in question. Uh, talk about perception. There was a, a Christmas movie that came out this year called Journey to Bethlehem. It sort of came and went, and you can stream it now, and it's a fun, uh, you know, Christmas, uh, uh, you know, uh, a story there, and, uh, but it's a musical, and it's got comedy and music and all of these things, and that's, and that's fine. There's, I have no problem with that. But folks, when you read the story of Jesus' birth and the circumstances in which he came into this world, they were anything but funny. They were anything but peaceful. They were anything but quiet. They were raw. They were uh, rough. And they were real. In that sense, they were R-rated. There are some very awkward, embarrassing, dark, rough messy, even extremely violent things in the story of the birth of Jesus. You can hardly read it without blushing a little bit and saying, uh, 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 if you try to read the stories and you don't put this preconception on top of it, and you don't put this rosy colored picture on top of it, you're going to read Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2, and you're going to say, what in the world is this? This is a strange, bizarre, messy story. And that's why it is so attractive to everybody, because we can all relate to the messiness of what's going on here. Let me just give you a few little pieces of it for thought this Christmas Eve 2023. 
You know the story of Mary and her husband starts with a J. Joseph, okay. So, and Mary and Joseph were what you call betrothed. In other words, in that culture, in that time, they were legally, they were married, but physically they weren't married. So they had not yet come together, and kids in the room, I'll let you and your parents discuss what all that means, okay? But they were legally married, all right? That, that was the process back then. And, and back then, it, you should be glad that you didn't live in that, you don't live in that time and culture because it was arranged. These marriages in Hebrew culture were arranged, sometimes at very young ages, and the two families met, and they, you know, there was this whole process of how you would, the dowry and the payment and this and that. It was not like, you know, the couple sort of falls in love and decides that they want to get married and all that. No, folks, that's not the way that it was in the first century ancient world in Hebrew culture. So you're talking about arranged marriages. These are like adolescents or teenagers at best. And this was a standard thing that happened. There's no big surprises there, except one, a really, really awkward one, a really odd one, one that is you don't see anywhere else in the Bible, one that is going to cause this young woman a lot of... To, to question a lot of things. It's going to cause her husband, or you could technically say husband-to-be, I suppose, but legally speaking, it's her husband. He's going to ask a lot of questions. And what is that circumstance? She's pregnant. Well, hold on a second here. Now, in our modern world, in our culture, in our time, we, we would say, oh, well, it's no big deal. You know, we would look, especially in the province of Quebec, where a lot of couples live together before they're married. Some of them never get married. Say, well, so what? You know, she's pregnant, and what's the big deal? You know, the, 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 it, it, stuff happens, <laughs> you know, is what people would say today. It would go be like a blip on a radar. Not in that time and not in that culture. In that time, in that culture, that young woman is in a lot of trouble because she now is viewed as an adulteress. She now is the person who has committed adultery against her husband, Joseph. Again, they're legally married, although they have not physically yet come together. That would take place in a ceremony later on and so on. But she would be accused of adultery. Never mind whatever man was involved in the alleged affair, but she, the eyes would be on her. And this is why we read in the text, uh, especially in Matthew's gospel, that Joseph tries to find a way out of this. Uh, you read in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, uh, uh, speaking of Jesus, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. Whose fault is it? This is the work of God through the Holy Spirit. Oh, boy. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. This is the Levitical law of Moses. And yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He says, well, I'm going to find a way to get out of this, and I'm going to divorce her quietly because she's in a lot of trouble, but I have to keep the law because I'm a godly person, and I'm going to keep the law. What a mess, folks. This is a, an embarrassing mess for her 
and for this man. And of course, he hears from God and God says, no, don't do it. And this is of God. This is of the Holy Spirit. Take her home to be your wife. And he obeys. These, this is a remarkable young couple because she, she goes along with the whole thing. God tells her what's going to happen beforehand. She goes along with the whole thing. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. And she says, how will this be? Since I am a virgin, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And her response, I am the Lord's servant. Wow, great response. May your word to, to me be fulfilled. Embarrassment, shame, it's awkward. In, in that sense, it's kind of R-rated, folks. This is a very awkward situation, socially embarrassing. Mary viewed this way. Joseph, after he hears from God, he obeys too. He's going to believe that this is of God. So he's not going to think his wife cheated on him. She, he's going he's gonna to think this is, a, this is a, real, a real thing. As awkward and as messy and as embarrassing it is, we're going to go along with it and we're going to obey. Remarkable. Well, it gets worse, folks. Then you get to the, to the, the, the time where Jesus is born. Uh, okay, so there's a census. Censuses were fairly common. Nothing, nothing strange there. This one here is a little bit odd because we're told of a governor uh, who uh, Quirinius and the timing of the census. Uh, historians have challenged this narrative for centuries because they say the timing doesn't work. Quirinius's reign doesn't work with the timing, and there are various solutions that we've found through looking at archaeology and all that to try and, and get through this. But in any case, censuses were very common. Okay. So they're on their way to Bethlehem. Okay. She's pregnant. Not okay. But we go along with this. But then the circumstances of this birth. So uh, you get to the place where Jesus is born. And there's a lot of misconception about this. Again, when we have these preconceived pictures that we dump upon the narrative. Let's just read it without thinking about that. So you see verse 6 of Luke chapter 2, while they were there, we don't know how long they were there for in Bethlehem. Could have been a while that they were there. We're not sure. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Okay. She gave birth to her firstborn son. Okay. She wrapped him in cloths, or the old King James, in swaddling clothes. I love that. I remember when, when our daughter was born, and the nurse said, this is how you wrap your baby in a swaddle. And so I took a video I still have the video. And she it was like a do-it-yourself swaddle. So I used to just love to swaddle my daughter, who's now 20 and quite embarrassed by me saying this. But I wrapped in swaddling clothes, you see. And so, yeah, okay, that's all good. That's all good. And placed him in a, in a what? A manger. Because there was no, and in some translations, no room for the inn, more modern ones here, no guest room available for them. 
Okay, so we typically have this idea of, you know, the Motel 6 of the day, and, you know, th th there's Mary and Joseph, and she's on, a, you know, some sort of animal, and he's walking her along, and they get to the Motel 6, and there's no room in the first century Motel 6, and so they go in the back, and that's where, you know, the animals are, and that's where they have the baby. Uh, folks, like, the, the preconceived idea, we think of an innkeeper, you know, the innkeeper, there's a knock on the door, you know, and the innkeeper comes out and he says, sorry, no room in the inn, you know. Folks, there's no innkeeper. There's no, it, it, this is, a, we, we dump this on top of the narrative that's not what's there. What we think, we, we th what we think about this is, is quite a bit different. Back in the first century, and we found some of these now, you, you have these houses, and I hope you can see that. Uh, that's a first century Israelite house, okay? And you see in the corner there, the thing is 24 by 24. So 24 feet by 24 feet. It's not big because a, a double wide mobile home on the bottom is, is 24 by 60. So this thing is, you know, st two floors stacked on top of each other. And uh, this word in, it's better translated guest room or upper room. And upper room we see in the book of Acts, okay? And it would, it would connect with what we know of these houses that we found. And you could see how they were made. It's very rudimentary kind of thing, clay, wood structure, hay, this kind of stuff. But the way that they did it was in, the, in that upper room there or that, uh, that, that space that you see on the second floor, that's where the people would stay. And down on the main floor, you would have uh, animals brought in at night, uh, either to protect them from the elements, sometimes to protect them from theft. They would bring them in there, and the people would stay upstairs. So we think that this may be what's being referred to here in Luke chapter 2. This is one pretty good, you know, theory. So what happens here is that Mary and Joseph get to this house, were they at this house before? Maybe yes, maybe no, we're not sure. Is this Joseph's family's house? Maybe yes, maybe no, we're not sure. But she ends up delivering this baby, and she places this baby in a manger. Now, a manger, folks, is a... Um, I don't want to be crude when I say it, but this is a feeding trough. It's what animals feed out of. So, you know, you've got an animal there, and that animal would, would eat out of, a, out of a, a trough. It's a stone structure where they put animal food in. And this is where they, they put Jesus when he's born. There's no mention of any midwives there at, the, at the, uh, the birth of Jesus. There's no mention of any family there. There's no mention of any wise men there. The wise men is like two years later. If you read carefully, you will see those magi. We have no idea how many there were. I know our beautiful Christmas carols say three. The scripture does not say three. And the scripture does not say that they were there the night that Jesus was born. And the scripture does not say that the star was there the night that Jesus was born. Again, Get rid of your preconceptions and take it straight out of the Gospels, and you're going to come up with a very different picture. So what does that tell us? That's a somewhat unwelcoming circumstances for the incarnate God to come into the world. 
They're putting him in a stone-cold eating trough. God incarnate. He's not born in Jerusalem in a palace. He's not born into beautiful, pristine conditions with a whole bunch of priests watching, going, oh, the Son of God, you know. It, this is not that way. It's quite raw. Why did they not at least give them some space in the upper room? No, we're here. Go have your baby downstairs. And uh, there's no place to put him. Nobody seems to care enough to prepare anything so that Mary can have some comfort, so that maybe this baby can have some comfort. After all, he is God incarnate. No, put him in a feeding trough. I love the, the words, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes in the Christmas carol. Uh, folks, if you were the little baby and you were put in a stone-cold feeding trough, I think you would be crying your little eyes out. And I think Jesus was bawling, probably saying to himself, I don't like it here. It's cold. It's stone. I don't like it here. And for that matter, Mary would have been very nervous if her little baby Jesus, no crying, he were making. The first thing the mother looks for is what? Cry, please cry. If you don't cry, there's something wrong. Now, I know those writers back then, they're focusing more on the deity of Christ. And so they're trying to emphasize this. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes for he is the son of God. So he's got no time for crying. But he's human, folks. He would have been crying in that stone-cold feeding trough. That's raw, very raw conditions, very un, unclean kind of conditions. We don't know if there were other animals in that space. We have no clue. The only reason why we say it's at night is because we have this one little drop here with the shepherds that we'll get into in a second. They were watching over their flocks by night so we say it was a night that jesus was born so this idea of animals being all around well maybe but all we know is there's a there is definitely a feeding trough there aha that means there would be animals there at some point right so very raw raw conditions then it gets even worse you get this the, the, these angels are going to appear to of all people shepherds so again, back there at that time, like today we look at shepherds and we say, oh, so cool, you know, shepherds, and they need to work with animals and all of this. That's not the way that it was back there, folks. Back there, shepherds were always working with animals, always uh, viewed as unclean. They're at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. They're untrustworthy people because they're known to steal livestock, trade livestock secretly, all of this kind of thing. And so you're going to get the angel, an angel of the Lord is going to appear to these, this group of shepherds, and then you're going to get a great company of the heavenly host, which could be an army, folks, of angels appearing to, of all people, shepherds. They're not appearing to priests. They're not appearing to kings. They're not appearing to even Mary and Joseph. Who are they appearing to? shepherds as if intentionally to pick the lowest of the low on the whole social scale this is who who gets the news and it doesn't say that the the uh that the shepherds were like oh that's so cool look at those angels 
they're scared out of their minds when they see this. It says they were terrified, terrified, scared. In the old King James, they were sore afraid. I love that translation. They're spooked by this. They're scared by this. And the angels say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I bring you, you know, good news of great joy and so on. So this is, uh, you know, you got this supernatural message given to these very untrustworthy, unclean sort of people who are always in the bush. I mean, this is raw, folks. It's unusual. It's strange. It's messy. Well, it gets even worse. Even after that, you hear in Matthew's gospel, um, they finally, uh, uh, King Herod, this is Herod the Great, is going to hear about this uh, because he's got some strange visitors from very, very far away, hundreds of miles away, probably the Babylon area, some speculate, and they come over and they're visitors in the great city of Jerusalem, and they say, uh, tell us the news. Where's the king of the Jews? Because we saw a star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So this was after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, verse 1, after Jesus. So presumably after Jesus was born, they see this rather odd sight. They come over to Jerusalem. They say, hey, uh, we, we, we see the, the star. Well, it doesn't say Herod saw it. It doesn't say anyone else saw it. They saw it. Very strange, very odd. Herod's response, the whole city's response is one of joy and excitement. No, it's one of this really bothers us. It says they, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Matthew 2 verse 3. So the birth of Jesus disturbs the king and disturbs the whole city. Wow. Why would they be disturbed? You know, I guess, you know, you got visitors from the east. Who are these people? They're probably not even Hebrew. How do they know this? How do they know of this king of the Jews? Where are they getting this information? Takes them by surprise, causes something of a, 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 a kerfuffle. You know, that everyone's disturbed. Everyone's, what's going on here? And Herod is going to, going to try to get to the bottom of this. And he calls his people, his chief priests, teachers of the law, and he says, uh, okay, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Tell me. And now Herod the Great, we know a lot about him from the history books. Josephus writes a lot about him. He's what you call an Idumean. He's sort of partially Jewish, but not fully. It's a complex political setup over there. So he's asking for an interpretation. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And of course, the teachers of the law, these chief priests, they say in Bethlehem in Judea, they say. And so Herod says, all right, bring these Magi to me. And he does so in secret. And he says, tell me, when was the exact time that you saw this alleged star? And they, they give him the information about when they say they saw it. And then he says, all right, go and find this baby then. And when you find him, come back to me. 
And because I will go and I will worship him too. And of course, we know Herod is lying when he says that. He's deceiving them. He's trying to find out if he can get a hold of this baby. And so they go on their way. They once again see the star. The star strangely goes over a house where we're told the child was. They see the star. They're overjoyed. They come to the house. They see the child with his mother Mary. No mention of Joseph at that point. They bow down and worship him, present their gold, their gold of frankincense and myrrh. But then they're warned in a dream to not fulfill their part of the deal and go back to Herod. And so they skip town and return to their country by a totally different route. Well, then you see that Herod hears about this and Herod is going to hunt for this child who's probably up to two years old at this point, And he is going to effectively begin to hunt for him. Jesus is being hunted as a small child. He's not even two years old, probably, and he's being hunted. This is, this is very, very rough stuff. And then you see the worst part. This is the most violent part, the darkest part for sure of the Christmas narrative is that this king is going to do something unspeakably evil to the families with firstborn sons in the town of Bethlehem. And he issues the order and uh, uh, says in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, when Herod realizes that the Magi have outwitted him, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi of when the star appeared. He wants to leave no stone unturned, and he issues the order to execute infants? This is a gruesome, unspeakably evil circumstance that Jesus is born into. He is on the run for his life from this king, and all of these families are going to suffer his twisted wrath because he is jealous and threatened. And we know a great deal about Herod the Great from the history books. This is a man who did not shy away from executing members of his own family. Even his wife, Miriam, two of his sons, he had them executed when he felt threatened by them. There's a joke that came about because he used to keep the dietary laws. I think it was actually Augustus who wrote this joke, and he said it would be better to be one of, of Herod's pigs than to be one of his children because he wouldn't eat pig, and yet he would have his own children executed. Folks, like, this is a raw, messy, unmentionable circumstance and this is the circumstance that Jesus came into. He's being hunted even as an infant. Now, it strikes me as rather 
shocking when I look at this story straight out of the Bible without my preconceptions sort of dropped onto the text. And there's nothing wrong with the rosy colored pictures and the, the, the beauty of a scene, you know, like a traditional Christmas scene, as long as you know the real thing, folks. Because the real thing is what makes him accessible by human beings. Because we live in messy circumstances, don't we? We live in raw and rough circumstances. You'll notice that life doesn't sort of magically become better when Jesus is born. It's not like some Hollywood movie where Jesus is born and sort of the blackness of the world all of a sudden turns magically green because Jesus has been born. On the contrary, it's just as rough and mean and messy and raw as it was before. But there's a difference now. God has come into this raw, rough, messy world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Aha! So now he's in the mess. Now he inhabits, as one of us, the mess. But life doesn't get magically better when Jesus comes. It's, he comes into these raw, these rough, and these very real circumstances just like you and me. All of you can think of circumstances in your life. Maybe some of you are even living through them now, and they're awkward, and they're rough, and they're embarrassing, and they're messy, and maybe in some cases they're violent. Maybe they're, there's all kinds of things, and you, you look at the Christmas story, and the, you're attracted to it because you see God comes into the same mess himself, the same very mess. And it's curious, here's God. He is the one who oversees the whole thing of this young maiden becoming pregnant. Has God ever done anything to you in your life where you feel like this circumstance is from God and it has put me in a mess? It has put me in an embarrassing situation. It has put me in a kind of almost shameful situation. And I'm pretty sure that this whole business was of God. Why would God do that to me? Well, why would God do that to Mary, folks? Awkward, messy, embarrassing. Why is he not born in some palace, folks, with a beautiful, prepared, pristine uh, uh, crib made for him? No, folks, the lowest of the low in a concrete, stone-cold feeding trough. My goodness, I mean, you can't get any lower than that. And here he's appearing to, the angels are appearing to these shepherds, lowest on the totem pole, the proverbial totem pole of that time. Shepherds, folks, it's, it's so gritty. And what does this teach you? If, if life doesn't get magically better when Jesus is born, do you think your life is going to get magically better when you receive Jesus into your life? When you decide to serve him, are you under the preconception that your life is supposed to get magically better? All of a sudden, all of the bad circumstances are going to, like a Hollywood movie, vanish with CGI special effects? No, folks, they're not. In some cases, your life might even get more messier, more messy as you decide 
to surrender it to Jesus. It might get really messed up, twisted, all kinds of new problems that I have now. All these relationships are all messed up now because I decided to serve Jesus. Oh no, now I've got to change this and now I've got to change that. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And it's awkward and it's strange and it's bizarre. What happened? Well, Jesus experienced the very, very same, similar kinds of things when he came into this world, folks. Don't be, don't, don't, don't have a preconceived idea that ends up being more along the lines of mythology than on the lines of reality. What does it mean when you come to Christ, when you receive Jesus, as John 1 says, those who received him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. And this is what it's about. When a person comes to Christ, you live Differently, you live a new life in Christ. So now you don't go through life alone. You and your partner, you know, sin, which is basically who you're a slave to before you come to Christ is you and sin. And you have this relationship with your sin and that's it. And you go through life and you try to cope and you try to navigate. But basically you're hooked on sin. In one way or another, that's what's, that's what's got you. In some shape or form, that's what's got you. Now, when you come to Christ, that's shifted away, you see. And your life is now in him, not just with Christ, but in Christ. Your very identity changes, and you're able to walk through the messiness, the rawness of life, the rough moments of life, no longer alone you in your sin, but you and Christ. You live in him in a new way, in a new relationship. And that, folks, is the message of the Christmas story. That's the message that I pray that you go into, you know, the celebrations of tonight and tomorrow, whatever you do in your home, in your circumstance. Remember, folks, Jesus has his arms extended widely for you. We are not talking about a God who is unapproachable, but one who is extremely approachable. No matter what your situation in life, no matter how raw and messy, no matter how dark and gloomy it is, you can come to the Savior this Christmas in a new way. Would you stand with me, please? And the musicians, if you want to come up, the singers, you pick any carol you want and uh, sing your hearts out. Everybody loved it. And uh, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful. We are so uh, uh, in awe of what you have done. The, the, uh, the wonder of the story of the birth of Jesus and I pray, Lord, for every one of us in this room, people who are online, that, Lord, we wouldn't, just, we wouldn't just consider you, we wouldn't just think about you, but, Lord, we would surrender to you this season. We would uh, want to pursue you. We would want to uh, worship you. We would want to rearrange things in our life and put you first we would want to walk through life 
with you, Jesus, our Lord, our King, our Savior, and our God, we pray together today. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. amen. Merry Christmas, everyone.